Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage this evening. Um, So today we will be in Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. So I invite you to turn there um, in your Bible, if you have your Bible with you. If not, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew in front of you. And if you need a Bible, we do have some in the lobby that you can keep as our gift to you. So once again, we'll be reading Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. So I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Betsy. Good evening, everyone. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Andrew Workman. I'm one of the elders here. And for once, it's nice to be up here on a non-somber occasion. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Steve has been giving me the heartbreaking send-offs recently. I think it's two in a row. So I don't know what being an elder means to Steve. Apparently, I'm now the liturgical grim reaper. So hopefully you're not all conditioned. You see me and wonder who's leaving. There's no one leaving tonight, at least I don't think. And if you are, please let me know so that I can send you off. Uh, 
But Steve's away this weekend, and so that means I get the privilege of continuing our series in Esther. And tonight we'll be in chapter 5, the climax of the story. And if you recall, last week we left on a knife's edge. So Esther famously declared, if I perish, I perish, and decides to approach the king. And today we see the outcome of that decision, as well as the unfolding of her plan. And then the scene shifts to that rather grim outtake of Haman plotting to kill Mordecai in a rather grisly and humiliating fashion. So how we're going to walk through the text tonight is just how it unfolds. So first we'll look at Esther's courage, second we'll look at Haman's pride, and then lastly we'll see where do we get our source of courage. So once again, Esther's courage, two, Haman's pride, and then three, where do we get our source of courage? So the courage of Esther. Let's do some scene setting just real quick and and ground level. We hammered this point home a little bit last week, but it cannot be overstated. Esther's on a suicide mission, so the law is explicitly clear and says that if you approach the king without being invited, you're going to be put to death, full stop except for the provision that states that the king finds favor, if you find favor with the king and he extends a scepter to you, you will be granted clemency. And we know that this was likely true historically, so archaeologists have dug up two artistic reliefs of King Xerxes, and it shows King Xerxes on his throne with a long scepter in his right hand, and right behind him is a very large soldier wielding a very large axe. So the threat of death was quite real, and it was known, and probably likely. To compound Esther's odds, if you recall, she's walking into this room with a secret, which is that she is Jewish. Um, So because of that, she is also a foreigner and part of the ethnicity that the king's right-hand man wants to commit genocide against. So there was a historian uh, at the time of Xerxes who wrote that Xerxes was known to be cruel and despotic, not just to foreigners, but members of his own household. Esther checks both of those marks. And so if anyone were to talk about her ethnicity or if people were to find out if she was Jewish, once again, game over. And so you think to overcome those odds and find favor with the king, Esther would return to the same playbook that won her favor in the first place, right? focus on her appearance and her beauty and her charm. Worked once, it'd probably be wise to to do so again. But no. We read that instead, Esther fasted for three days, including from water. And so after three days of fasting, she's no doubt weak, probably shaking, not just from fear, but from lack of food and water, likely a pounding headache. Her mind is probably not in the best state, and her mouth probably feels like a bag of cotton balls. Not exactly ideal, right, for someone whose life depends on her appearance or persuasion or her oratory skills. Her odds continue to go down. But she goes through with it, which is absolutely insane, no? And so we have to ask ourselves, what could make a person go through with something like that? And so we see the reason why she goes through with this act is because she has chosen to accept God as her true king. And so because of that, she follows God's design for her life. And when the riches of God are contrasted against the riches of the empire, she chooses God. And so is this a a stupefying act of bravery and courage that should and is talked about thousands of years later? Absolutely. But we're going to learn best from this tonight 
if we understand it to be a story of someone who's so transformed by God that she sacrifices worldly treasure to follow his design and call for his life. And we can learn a lot about how Esther goes about her plan and how she follows God in the face of deep uncertainty and fear. So when we talk about her act of courage, uh, we're talking about simply following God's design for your life. That's what acting is in this sense. And so for us, following God's design for our lives can be anything from sharing our faith with a friend, pursuing a relationship with a neighbor, or spending more time in, in the word and in prayer. So what can we glean from this part of the story, from Esther following God's design for her life? We'll see that it takes community. It takes our unique position where God has placed us. It takes choosing weakness over strength, preparing faithfully, and to keep going. So dipping a little bit into last week, if you guys recall, uh, Mordecai's role in Esther's decision cannot be understated, and it shows us the role of community. So even though she's in the palace, Esther's still in relationship with Mordecai, who is a faithful follower of God. And without being in so close proximity to Mordecai, there's practically no way. There would be no one to get in her face and say, you need to follow God, or to say that God is more beautiful than the empire. And so just a quick application, we need to be in constant community for all the times that we're seduced by the world because God uses our brothers and sisters to pull us back and remind us of the riches of our king. So next, as the situation unfolds, Mordecai reminds Esther of her status as the queen as to why she should act. It's sobering to think that we typically use our status and station as the first reason to why we shouldn't act, right? But God has placed us in a unique place around a particular group of people there are no accidents with where you are. And so when you think, but what about my reputation? What about my re relationship with a friend? Or what about my social status? Reverse that and say, because of the reputation God has given me, because of the friend God has given me, because of the status he has given me in my neighborhood, that's why my, I must follow God's design for my life and do the things he's called me to do. So as we mentioned, Esther proceeds asking, uh, approaching the king by fasting for three days and three nights. And in this, we see that she chooses weakness over strength and desires to first be in right relationship with God before she approaches Xerxes. And submitting to God often looks like weakness to the world, does it not? Because only by being weak can we allow God's strength to take center stage, and we can take a lot of confidence from that. And we see that once she's allowed to live, and the king asks her what she wants, she says, come to the banquet I've prepared for you and Haman. So she didn't wait until she knew the outcome to prepare the banquet. And she did so beforehand in faith, while she was weak and dehydrated and starving. Imagine setting out and directing this massive feast and all this food when you haven't eaten in three days. And imagine doing so knowing it might all be pointless because your head might be on the floor before the king even finds out about all this good food. She chooses weakness over strength, and by doing so, she's, she allow, allows God to exhibit his strength. And so she prepared, banking on God's strength, banking on God to move, and not her own strength. And so a quick application here, where might we 
be neglecting to prepare in faith? What banquet should we be preparing now before God calls us to act? So maybe you need to do some research to address a question a friend has about Christianity. Maybe you need to dog sit a few times for your neighbor just to get them to open up to you. Maybe you need to wake up an hour earlier and spend more time in the word and in prayer. Because we see that when we prepare faithfully, God promises to guide us. Listen to Proverbs 16.9. So the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? So we prepare, and the Lord moves our feet, and as the psalmist says often, he keeps our feet from slipping. And so God somehow moved Esther's feet towards the king, who miraculously extended his scepter to her. And Esther was prepared with her request to offer the king a banquet that was already made so that he and Haman could go at once. And as they feast, the king asks her again, what do you want? Right? He knows she probably didn't risk her entire life just to set out some good food for him. He offers to give her up to half his kingdom. And for what it's worth, this should not be taken literally, although it is interesting to think about hypothetically. Uh, It's simply a matter of speaking within the court. But it does put him on the hook to be generous in meeting a request. And so we see Esther respond with, come to the banquet that I'm going to prepare for you tomorrow. Scholars differ on whether Esther was too scared to really ask what she wanted, which was the saving of the Jews, uh, or if she had planned that the entire time to really get the king into her favor, and it was all part of her strategy. Either way, though, that's not really the point. The point is that she keeps going. So whether she was scared or not, she continues to be active and follows God's plan and design in the face of deep uncertainty and fear. She doesn't give up halfway. She could have had an out. She could have asked for something different or just bailed and said, nope, that was it. I just wanted to give you food. But no. And for Esther, as we'll see in the end, Steve spoiled it last week, so I can spoil it this week. It works out, right? Success. God saves the Jews. But unlike Esther, we know following God's design for our life doesn't doesn't always pan out the way we would like it to. And sometimes it just straight up doesn't end well for us. So maybe a relationship is is lost or your reputation is damaged or you're labeled a bigot. And you stand there amidst the ashes and in pain and suffering and thinking, I I don't know if that was even worth it. Because now that didn't even produce a neutral outcome, let alone a good one. God hears you, and it's natural to feel that way. And we can take encouragement by the nature of God's kingdom and the heavenly realm. Let me explain. So the book of Job opens with a description of angels and demons watching Job. By the way, Job is the book after Esther. And Satan, the devil, bets God that Job doesn't really love God for him. He just loves God for his blessings. And so the quick takeaway here is that the heavenly realm is watching Job's actions throughout the book. And when he uh, holds fast to God's design through endless pain and suffering, heaven roars in delight. With that in mind, listen to what Paul in Ephesians 3.10 says. Through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Like the book of Job, Paul is saying that heavenly authorities, i.e. angels and demons, learn about God's wisdom and plan through our actions on earth. So again, angels and demons learn about God through how we act on earth. So when you're sitting there in pain and frustration after following God's design for your life and it not ending well, be encouraged. The spiritual realm is watching and heaven roars in delight at the obedience of God's children. Actions that follow God are never in vain and are always part of his plan. So Esther's act of courage shows us the importance of being in community with other believers, accepting where God has placed us, choosing weakness over strength, preparing faithfully for God to move, and to keep going in the face of fear and uncertainty. Because whether it works out well or not, we know it's not in vain and part of God's plan. All right, so Haman's pride. Esther lives to see another day. The scene shifts to Haman on his way home from the banquet. And my man is flying high. He is on cloud nine. He's crested the wave. He's riding the breeze. He just got invited to Esther's super exclusive banquet with just the king and him. And if you're not the king himself, right, what more could you ask for? Because in a sense, he's, he's pretty much set. He has it made. And on the way home, he sees his old nemesis, Mordecai. And if you recall, years have passed since the original uh, incident. And seeing Mordecai turns the good taste of all that good food just to ash in his mouth. And I love how the text says that he restrains himself from doing something brash. Good, good for you. Um, and gathers his wife and his friends when he gets home. And then they hatch the plan to kill Mordecai in humiliating fashion. As you do. I think when reading Esther, Haman's a really hard guy to identify with. He's pretty much the worst. He is the epitome of that guy everyone hates. But the truth is, if we don't identify ourselves with Haman, we're missing out on a lot that God has for us through this story. Haman struggles with pride. Haman cares deeply about what others think of him. Haman wants to be liked. Haman finds his security and achievements in what the world can offer him. Haman wants his future to feel secure. Maybe that resonates with you. It only takes a cursory glance at our own hearts to see that we should very much be identifying with Haman in this story. So, as you can see, Haman's clearly a very proud individual who struggles with crippling insecurity. And these things go hand in hand. We see that when he gets back home to his friends and his wife, he immediately launches into this tirade about how great he is. So I'm picking up in verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had, not, how he had advanced himself above the officials and servants of the king. This is all in reaction to one guy not liking him. 
This is all in reaction to not getting the public recognition from one guy that he craves. The disapproval of one man makes him feel completely worthless. And because praise is what gets him up in the morning, when that's taken away, he's left lost, hurt, and furious. And again, whether we want to admit it or not, we've all experienced that. So when we put our stock and security into our achievements, our money, our career, and even our family, it will inevitably lead to pride, quickly followed by insecurity and anxiety. Because we think we deserve what we get when things are going well, that our riches are ours because of our smarts or our hard work. And when one of those idols are challenged in the same way it was to Haman, our world is going to crumble into insecurity. And we won't know how to handle not being liked or failing in our career or not having the perfect family. See, Haman's problem was never really with Mordecai. Even if he had solved the Mordecai problem, right, he wouldn't be satisfied. His problem is that he's searching for fulfillment in himself and what the world has to offer and not from God. Our problem's the same. And as I mentioned at the start, you get the feeling that Haman felt like he was set for the good life. But this one guy is throwing a wrench into everything. And it's noteworthy how many of our actions are done with that same intent of structuring our future, securing it, and creating the good life for ourselves. Whether it's a job, a home, a status, a family, we want to have that feeling of our future being set and we're good. That's a natural intuition ingrained in us that is meant to point us to God, the only source of security. But what happens when the future that we build for ourselves is threatened or the good life bubble is popped? We see what the world prescribes and what Haman's wife tells him to do. She says, solve the problem by murdering this guy. Take him out. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe not right away. I hope not. If there's someone in your life encouraging you to murder, see me afterwards. But think about the deeper message that she's communicating to Haman. Do what makes you happy. Seek fulfillment in worldly actions. Put yourself above others. Remove, at all costs, obstacles from making you happy. Now maybe that's a little more familiar. And it's pretty much all the world has to offer. She's not telling him to find his satisfaction in God or to be grateful for what the Lord has suited to him. And we fall for that advice, like Haman, way more often than we care to admit. And at the end of the day, Haman, his struggle was that he thought he'd only be accepted based off of what he achieved. And the gospel flips that upside down and says that we're accepted based off of what Christ has achieved. He is the bread that fulfills us. He is our security. He's the thing that gives our lives value. And when that's true, we won't be on a hamster wheel of fulfillment, going running round and round from achievement to achievement, saying, look how great I am. And we, therefore, we won't be left in the lurch when one of those things fail, which at some point in your life, it will. But instead, we'll be free from the enslavement of public recognition or the idols of career success or wealth. And then we'll be free to be who God made us to be and free to act and follow his design because it's more important to us 
than pursuing glory for ourselves. We'll be free to make the same choice as Esther did. So we've looked at Esther's courage about following God's design for our lives in the face of fear and uncertainty. Then we saw the pitfalls of Haman's pride and how we have to identify ourselves with him if we're to avoid the same fate, uh, which in turn will render it impossible for us to follow God's design. But if you're like me, it still feels a little hopeless, right? Even, even 20%, even, even 2% of Esther's courage just seemed bonkers, out of reach. And even a day without the pride and insecurity of Haman seems absurd. And so where do we get the courage and security for ourselves on a daily basis? Answer is simple. It's our Father in heaven. And the medium through which he grants it to us is through drawing near to him and his throne. See, the amount of courage needed to approach the throne is directly related to the goodness of who's on the throne, right? So Esther needed to have this unimaginable amount of courage to draw near to Xerxes. Xerxes didn't have a moral bone in his body. So Esther needed to summon up everything she had just to even step foot in that room. But what the Bible tells us and what God desperately wants us to know is that we don't need to be a hero to approach God and his throne. We don't have to have some heroic courage just to tiptoe in and pray we don't get smited, which is what we deserve after all. But instead, we can come into God's presence disheveled, insecure, and empty-handed, having no righteousness to clothe ourselves. Because unlike Xerxes, God is not petulant, he's not wrathful, or immoral. So when we're tired and scared, or need courage, not just to do something, but sometimes just to get out of bed in the morning, he'll always be there to scoop us up in his arms. And so while Esther had to have courage to draw near to Xerxes' throne, we get courage by drawing near to our good God on his throne. And let me just say, as, as a relatively new dad, there's just this deep, inexpressible delight and joy when my daughter runs to me when she's scared or needs something. And I want her to know she can always run to me. How much more does a Heavenly Father feel about us? And so we can leap into our Father's arms and be loved by the one who made us. And by extension, having a relationship with a God like that will by nature give us courage because come what may, the most powerful being of the universe will always be there to scoop us up and back us up. And he loves and delights when his children come to him. Having him by our side will give us the courage to act and do things for his purpose that we would have never been able to under our own strength. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the more we draw near to God, the more we'll know him and his character, and therefore we'll also know his design for our life better. 
I think deep down we all know that what I just described should not be possible. Because we're sinners. And we should not be able to go into the Almighty in that manner. Because God is so holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. So how is it that we are able to enter into God's throne and not be incinerated? The answer is that we must have a mediator go before us who is as holy as God. And that mediator is Jesus. As God's presence demands holiness, Jesus alone is qualified to enter on his own merit. But on the cross, instead of entering into God's presence pure and spotless, he entered into it bearing the sin of every human that ever has or ever will existed. Imagine the, the sickening reversal of being used to communion with the Father the closest relationship that the world has ever known, one of pure love and holiness, and to enter into the throne room at the hour of your greatest need and have utter wrath executed on you. What was once a place for the Son to find love and intimacy was now a place of complete rejection. God cannot have sin in his presence. So Jesus took on our sin, went to God's throne, and welcomed death on our behalf. And God's wrath and justice are met perfectly through Jesus' mediation on the cross. The death of the, of the only righteous man to ever live is enough because through the cross and the grace of God, we then get to use Christ as our entry into the throne room. And Christ's mediation was and is perfect. See, Esther was an imperfect mediator to a sinful king. Christ is a perfect mediator to a holy God. Esther could be imperfect because of the king's sinful nature, whereas Christ had to be perfect for a God that is completely holy. Esther had to be prodded into being a mediator for her people. Christ willingly offered himself up to leave heaven and become a mediator. Esther had no idea how successful her mediation would be. Jesus knew the outcome would be one of death and still went. Esther couldn't guarantee a just outcome for her people. Christ's perfect character guarantees his people a glorious outcome. After her mediation, Esther was lifted up in glory by her people. Christ was vilified by the public and denied by his own disciples. Esther was a sinner. Christ is sinless. Christ is the perfect mediator. And he continues to this day to advocate for God's children in the throne room. And so we can run to our Heavenly Father. And as the king extended his scepter of mercy towards Esther, so God extends the cross to us. That's how we get in. And we know we'll be welcomed because the wrath we deserve as sinners was taken on by Christ. And all that's waiting for us from our Father is the purest love that has ever existed. We're saved through the offering of the cross to be our punishment, and we know because of Christ's perfection, it's enough to cover our entry into God's family and presence for eternity. The cross is enough. And if you believe that, it'll change your life and change how you spend eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness 
on a Sunday evening in August. Thank you for your plan and the way you've brought about our salvation through the death of your son, Jesus. Father, help us to draw near to you, Lord. We thank you for the mediation of your son that allows us to draw near to you. And we thank you that you are a good God who's loving and holy. We thank you that we can come to you tired and weary, sick and poor, and that you want us to leap into your arms and that we can get courage to follow your design for our lives because of how good you are. Thank you for the cross and everything that it means. We thank you, Lord, that it is our entry into your family. Jesus, we praise you and we worship you for what you have done before we even knew you, taking on our sin and bearing our shame. And we ask, God, that you would help us to continue to follow your design for our life. Because come what may, we know, Lord, that you are king and your victory is final. We thank you, Father, and we pray this in your name.